Uh, if this is your first time here, hi. Uh, Lee Pass is a podcast where I sit down and chat some really awesome people about their lives, careers, and relationships with pop culture. It always feels like I'm chasing pop culture. We like to focus here on the pop culture you've caught up with or ignored and why. So, uh, thanks for being patient. Um, last week was an in-between episode with the guys from Guns of Parlophone, who are my buddies. And uh, this week, I'm going to cut straight to it because it's about 2 in the morning. And um, trying to get everything started before we start a new job. It's been a bit of a wild one recently. I'll let you guys know about it in a little bit once I've gone a bit of sleep. And straight into this, I'm really happy with this. David Mullane, who's um, an important name in Scottish fashion. He's got a lot to talk about. This is a great one. So, yeah, David Mullane, W2 Store, Come the Garçon, The Warehouse. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this should be great. So this is Daniel again. Um, I'm currently sitting in the W2 store in uh, Ruthven Lane in Glasgow. I hope I got the address right. And I'm s- sitting next to a Mr. David Mullane. That's me. How are you? I'm very well. It's good to see you, Daniel. It's great. It's great. I, um, I've, I actually interviewed for this shop back uh, a number of years ago. I think it was 2008. That's when we had just opened, we were a Comedy Garson Gorilla store. Yeah. Uh, the problem was we had <laughs> we didn't need any staff because we took over a shop that it was existing. So mm. they had they had staff. Um so there was just there was just me and two other people. Yeah. And we couldn't afford to have you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the uh, that's that's the sad reality of business. You have yeah. to balance your books. I I have to say though it was probably the best uh, job interview I've been to that I didn't get because I got um, a record player out of it. I was doing a I was doing a radio show for for uh, Sterling Flashing Lights and Flash Drives at the time, and yeah. you uh, handed over a record player with a bunch of seven inches. I think they were like Motown and Northern Soul stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I'm um, probably probably just I can't recall certain ones off the top of my head, but I'll drop in just like a wee bit of audio. So th- th- this is something. This audio here is something that David handed me <laughs> uh, after our job interview. <laughs> okay. So um, the Comic Garçon shop uh, was the last Gorilla yeah. shop. Well, they were called Gorilla stores, and Gorilla, as an urban fighter, bringing propaganda of um, the close of Comic uh, the close of Comic Garçon to a city that wouldn't normally have them. It was. It was. It was based on the, the concept of the pop-up, you know, it would pop up and then disappear. Yeah. Glasgow had had one earlier down at Finneson and it popped up two years before we opened, but it didn't really work very well because the, the location was quite difficult for people to find. Mm-hmm. Similarly, after we opened, I was told that we had sold more than the LA Guerrilla store, which wow. utterly surprised me because, but then when people came in here from LA, they told me, that the one in LA you just couldn't find. And, mm. and so location and retailing is really important. 
you know, you can be terribly arty and cool and tuck it away, but if people can't find it, that's a problem. It, it's a curiously shaped building, it has a, it has a pitched roof, but what's only sloping one way, um, and it's, uh, it's beside an 1870 building, which was the last dairy farm in the street. Oh, okay. Um, buyers, the word buyers comes from the, the place where animals slept. Okay, so the buyer, oh, buyer, of buyer, course. Buyer. Yeah. And that's where the name Buyers Road comes from. I should say that Ruthven Lane runs into Buyers Road because we haven't mentioned Buyers Road often. Oh, of now. course, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, this was almost certainly an outbuilding to the dairy farm. So yeah. probably you know, cows would sleep in here. I love that. I love this. Yeah. Idea. Another <laughs> use. Um, and that, that, to me, that was quirky enough to make a Condigarth and Gorilla story at all. Yeah, because it's quite. Um it's a label that doesn't necessarily go by anyone else's rules. I mean, I'm 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 wearing a piece of Comme des Garçons from the shop, which is half t-shirt with painted polka dots, and the rest of it is yeah. almost kind of like an Oxford shirt. It's wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. yeah. Mm. It's a, it's an old one. I had, I had to pop it out from the archive, but but, but you just put this old to you, but it, it looks really fresh. Mm. Yeah, and that's a great thing about creative design. It never, it doesn't really age. Yeah. Um, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Before the Comic Garçon shot, I mean, you've got quite a big, um, shall we say, CV with fashion. I, I just wanted to pop back to the star. I mean, were you born in Glasgow? Yeah, I was mm -hmm. born. Um, the, the Second World War separated the bust of my sister. She was born before the war and I was yeah. born after the war. And so it was, I'm part of what's called the baby boom generation mm. because all the soldiers came back from the war and there were lots of babies. There was, there was booming. There was yeah. babies boomed. Um, so I was born in a building that I think later became an asylum. But when I was born, it was a, it was a nursing home, a maternity hospital. Okay. Um, and it was on the outside of Glasgow. It, it's in a place called Wenox Town, so that's where I was literally born. Mm -hmm. I, I was brought up, um, first of all, we lived in the Knightswood area of Glasgow, which is in the west end, the west side of the city, but yeah. going slightly towards Loch Lomond, that kind of area. But then we moved to the other side of the city. But sadly for me, my mother died when I was 13, and that, that was a bit of a, a blow. It made me very introspective and, yeah. and maybe... Well, maybe I look back now and I think, well, I wouldn't probably have read so many books if I, if I, if I had more confidence. But I didn't have a lot of confidence when I was young, but um, I did know a lot about literature, yeah. um, which, was, which was useful as, as I then went into life, because I could make conversations about things, yeah. <laughs> books that become movies and stuff. What, did you have a favourite book um, as a kid? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was The Catch in the Rye, J.D. Salinger. Okay, um, interesting. Yeah, it was just, just, it was just so um, refreshingly modern in the way it was written. Uh, I can still remember the tone. <laughs> it was really, yeah. um, it, was, it, was, it was probably you know, a bit rude, but um, mm -hmm. it was fine. It's like the first blog post ever. <laughs> yeah, in a way yeah. it is. Yeah. So you know the book then? Um, it's it's actually one of my late passes. It's something I'm I'm yet to read, but it's, oh, you it's read somewhere it. on the it's list. It's under terrific. It's yeah. really, it really is terrific. I, as, uh, I didn't have much of a home life, and I was very happy to escape when someone suggested. I think I was twenty one. Someone suggested that I would have lots of fun if I moved across to Amsterdam, 
Um, and this this is a friend who worked for CNA. Yeah. This is before email or anything, but I used to get cards saying, "Oh, you would love it over here. You should come." So mm. I just thought, "Ah, oh, to hell, I'm going." So I packed up my little white mini and drove um, drove to Amsterdam. I lived and worked in a hotel, privately owned, privately owned and run hotel for mm. a year, and had a great time. It was really, it was really wonderful. So what 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 year was what what year was that that you came moved over to Amsterdam? Um, well. I, th I can remember more, more clearly when I came back, which was the next year, and it was about 70, 73, about 1973. Yeah. I remember I was playing on the radio when I was driving over, and it was a, it was a big hit at the time, and it was called American Pie. Yeah, I was just going down into England, around about Carlisle, and, and that was playing, and it just made me, I don't know, it just filled me with joy. And <laughs> I don't know why, but I just remember it, it stuck in my head, it was just a wonderful thing. I started singing bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye And singing, this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die but, you know, I can still remember, so we're going back to about 1972 and I can still yeah. remember driving into Dam Square, which is in Amsterdam Where I had arranged to meet my friend I parked my little white mini and I got out and I'm standing looking around and this couple came up and said, Hey, you're from Glasgow, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've come all this way to a new life. <laughs> and it was the first thing that I had. The first people that spoke to me were from Glasgow. <laughs> so bizarre. That's um, wild. We, we do kind of have like a radar where we can just yeah, seek out other see, people from uh, Glasgow, can't we? I think it's something to do with the, the, the skin, the skin colour. We don't yeah. Get, yeah, you get a good suntan. Right? <laughs> Most of us here, we don't have Brazilian mothers. And so yeah, we, yeah. Mm, like yeah. Peruvian, yeah. yeah oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm getting your origins wrong. <laughs> no, I'm like, uh, I have this conversation a lot where people ask me sometimes, like, what, what kind of race are you? And sometimes I just kind of feel like I'm ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. I can be Turkish some days, Brazilian some days, and then people think I'm Israeli other days. When when you headed in to, to Amsterdam, were you, were you working or you had studied an accountancy? Yeah, I had, yeah. Yeah, and it was that... was cost accountancy, so it wasn't, mm. it wasn't uh, a chartered accountancy. Yeah, but I'd, I'd gone to a good school, and although um, I hadn't enjoyed school very much, you did pick stuff up, and I had quite good French. And so mm. one of the reasons that I got the job was because I could speak to French customers, and the, 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 Dutch, Dutch, the Dutch find French difficult. Yeah. Well, they did then, and then it was just a wonderful, just a wonderful kind of social experience because it was so different from everything that was here. Probably because I was on the outside of it, not a native speaker, that made it more interesting because I could spend a lot of time watching and you know, thinking about what's going on and how people behaved. Yeah. So, and that, that's something that stuck with me. I really enjoy people watching, observing people, mm. people interact with one another. Yeah. I think it's an interesting, um, interesting thing for yourself to, to understand how the world works. Yeah. I was at a point where I thought, I can't really keep doing this anymore. Um, I need to do something else in my life because it didn't, wasn't really very fulfilling. Yeah. Um, and a guy from that I knew from Glasgow who had family in Italy like came, got in touch with me and said that he was coming back to Amsterdam and would I be, would I be interested in driving back with him because he was a bit lonely because he'd driven all the way from 
Italy. Yeah. And it had a very cool MGB GT. It's very cool. Nice. And so we drove back to Glasgow. Mm. And I was walking through Royal Exchange Square beside what, what is now the Gallery of Modern Art. And I met someone in the street who, whom I knew from my time in Glasgow before I had left. We had a family business in Glasgow Street it's called Gordon Brothers. Yeah. And um, and Walter Gordon was the he was the managing director. He said, Ah, you you're here and I said, No, I'm really still living in Amsterdam, I'm just home for the weekend and he said, Oh, um, that's a pity because I would love to talk to you because we need a menswear buyer for a, a little boutique that we're opening um, in Gordon Brothers and he said that we think it would be you would be ideal for it. I said, but I don't have any experience of, of working in that, but he said, but yeah. you've got uh, you've got a kind of intrinsic style that we we think we can teach you what you don't know. Do um, you remember what you were wearing? <laughs> this is going to sound so naff, but I used to no, love to have it. I used to love to have sweaters tied around me. Uh, I would have mm. to tie it around my neck, or you know, like a scarf. Or <laughs> was this before like prep style had kind of crossed yeah, over was, internationally? Uh, the, we wore the same clothes as our dads wore. Which, Mm. Young people didn't have any individual style, yeah. and I think that was probably what I was hanking for. I wanted something different. I didn't want to look like my dad. Almost at the very, very beginning, kind of when I started, someone came in who had um, an agency, um, an agency selling con like conservative menswear, and it was it was in an office in um, Centino Square. Yeah. So this guy was called Dougie Dougie Hood, and uh, Dougie came in to chat to me. And, told me it was exciting what I, what I was going to do and, and he was just at that point where he really loved the idea of a new new way of dressing and yeah and he said there's a, a guy working in Nottingham that I think you should meet and that I've met and if you could get as close to class it would be terrific yeah. and so I did phone this guy up and went down to Nottingham and that was Paul Smith mm -hmm. and that was 1973 yeah. And I brought both with Glasgow. What kind of stuff was it? Was it tailored um, suits? Or? Yeah, it was. It was tailored suits. But it was tailored suits and fabrics and cuts that you would never have seen men wearing. And to the extent that if I went, if I was wearing something from a shop and I went down to Argyle Street, um, people used to stop me, literally stop me in the street and ask me where I got my clothes, honestly. Wow. There were so few people that stood out that had anything. Mm. Interesting to wear. We had so many young, uh, you know, the, like Kenny Dalglish. He was a he was a customer. That the, <laughs> I was footballer. The footballer. Yeah. yeah, I always smile when I think about Kenny because Kenny's legs were in inverse shape to the shape of the trousers yeah. because his thighs were so developed because of football. But mm. his but the, the trousers that we were wearing were flared. So they, they were narrow in the thigh and then they flared from just above the knee. So they flared out to about the, the total width of your shoe and so they were kind of extraordinary. And uh, <laughs> that kind of used to have terrible problems trying to pull them on because he couldn't get them past his, his greatly developed thighs. <laughs> but anyway, that was, uh, that was his problem. But I, I do always remember him coming in. I, I was pretty successful. The management invited me to join the board. And I was very, very young. I was only about 25 when I was asked wow. to join the board. Okay. That, what, that, what were you thinking when that happened? Well, the, the reason that they asked me to join the board is because they knew that the business didn't have a long-term future and they wanted, a, they wanted a young mind to give them some pointers, some mm. ideas. The issue was that I was selling was growing and what 
a lot of the other departments were selling was not growing. But the basic structure of the business was something that was becoming very old-fashioned. And it was, it was a, called a credit drapery business. And it was people used to open accounts with the, with the shop. There were a number of shops in Glasgow that were structured in that same way. They all came from businesses that started in the late 19th century. You know, most of them were very successful, like Goldbergs and places like that, all part of the old culture. But the thing that had changed the businesses was the introduction of credit cards. So credit cards meant that people didn't need to have accounts in one shop. They could move, you could use their card to go from one shop to another shop. Yeah. And that's why the business was struggling. And that's why all these businesses have now vanished. They've all gone away. Yeah. And there's none left. What we did was, over the, the, the years, as my business was growing, we made plans for, for a big change. What happened was that the red sandstone building that had been the founding building, mm. well, not quite the founding building, but it was the building, the business started in the other side of Glasgow Street in 1886 okay. and moved into the red building in 1908. So not quite the start, but near the beginning. And that building I loved because it was full of character, really strong Glasgow style, red sandstone, very much influenced by Charles Ray Macintosh, designed mm -hmm. in 1908, but no architect's name against it. So it just had been a, car, a draftsman that had done the details for, 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 an, for an engineer. Has it ever been uncovered who no, built it? No. Well, we know the engineer's name, but we don't know who the, who the draftsman was. We see there wasn't an architect. Oh, it was okay. A, it was a, an engineer and a draftsman who, who, who did the, who, he drafted what the stonemasons had to cut. So, mm. And it's, it's a wonderful building. It's listed now and really, really special. So what we did was we took the building that had been added to that building, which was a modern building built in the 60s. Yeah. Um, and we sold that to the Stock World China Bazaar. They were further down in Stock World Street and they moved in there. I think it's a block of flats now. Yeah. Um, so then we moved into the Red Sandstone building and we opened in 1978 with a bit of a flourish. Yeah. Um, we and called it the warehouse. The warehouse. Yeah, and that was, that was, you know, they talk about some of your best ideas come when you're driving. I was driving along the expressway yeah. and we were trying to think of a name for the building, mm. for the business. And I said, I said, but everyone in the business talks about going into the warehouse because that was what they called it. They didn't call it a store, they didn't call it a shop, they called it the warehouse. So it seemed to me a very logical name to give to it. We mm. called it the warehouse. <laughs> and it seemed like totally natural and comfortable. Yeah. And sadly we used Macintosh's lettering, which I was a bit embarrassed about later because everybody, every hairdresser in Glasgow almost had a had to use Macintosh lettering yeah. by, the, by the time we is, changed it. Is there a trademark over the Macintosh no. font? No, there's not. Well there is a trademark for a a, a font which is a, produced by a by a font design company, yeah, mm. but there's no Macintosh estate because he didn't do a complete light, uh, um, alphabet. All right. He only produced letters for um, lettering competitions or, or designs. Um, well, that's 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 another story. But um, yeah, I, I had to ask because I went I went um, to uh, I went to a restaurant over the weekend and it had Glasgow written on it in the. Macintosh font. And I was wondering to myself, surely mm. there's got to be someone. Mm. Yeah, gentleman you were talking about beforehand, who was a uh, part of the Gordon Brothers. That yeah. was, uh, was Walter, Arthur. Walter Gordon. Walter Gordon. Walter Gordon. 
-hmm. He was the grandson of the man who founded it, who had the same name, Walter Gordon. So mm -hmm. if you look at the building now on the corner, there are gilded um, letters, and it's WPG, mm -hmm. Walter Patterson Gordon. That, that was the, the founding, um, founding creator of, of the business, in fact. Yeah. And he called it Gordon Brothers because he started in 1886 on the other side of the street with his brother. Mm -hmm. um, but they fell out and Walter did the, the building on his own. Yeah. And he had five sons, but Walter was the only grandson who was really in, interested in the business. They also turned off to do other things. Yeah. Um, so it was, the, it was a big challenge because we had the ground floor, first floor, second floor, third floor, fourth floor. Um, we put the offices and the sewing room, etc., on the fourth floor. Not quite at the beginning, but in 1980 we opened the cafe, and yeah. that was a 60-seat restaurant space with, a, with its own kitchen and, and its own chefs, and everything was made fresh. And mm. It was a terrifically successful place. And the floor below that had a beautiful balcony, a cast ironwork. Um, with mm -hmm. a little gate and it's so, so lovely French windows onto the floor so the, so the girls got that floor because it was the prettiest one yeah and um, on the, the floor below we had um, menswear and then on the ground floor we had shoes and in the beginning I think we had shoes and we had casual wear on the ground floor as well it basically it ran along season after season bringing mm -hmm. creative people like the the very first collection of John Galliano, the very first ever. Yeah. Um, the, the very early collections of Catherine Hamlet, and then uh, always and still working with Paul Smith. Yeah. Um, was was Galliano only doing women's wear or just men's wear? Yeah, no, it was, it was only women's wear at the beginning. Mm. Didn't do men. He didn't do men's wear. Was it was it couture? Or was he doing just ready to wear? It was ready to wear. It was ready to wear. Yeah, yeah. Couture is a word that's. Been, gets abused an awful lot. I okay. think because the Americans call anything that's well made, they call it couture. Mm, okay. couture. Couture is a French institute, the Institute of, um, of Couture, and, mm. and so you've got to be accredited by that institute and they, they want you to have an atelier with sewing room and you know, yeah. sort of things are more or less one-off. What, what, um, you know, kind of clothes that Princess Diana would wear, a one-off design. One of one, none before, none to come. None yeah. to come, just one, just one. And so, so, but, so you have to pay a premium for that because the designer has to keep coming up with new, new things and new things and new things. Yeah, anyway, that's another issue. <laughs> that's, just the, that's just how the language changes. <laughs> and, yeah. And you get to my age, you get really annoyed by language changes. <laughs> yeah. One of the most exciting highlights I can remember was 1986 when the Antwerp Six appeared at, the, at Olympia, which was where we mm -hmm. where we went in London to buy designer clothes. Um, was that kind of like a, a trade fair sort of thing? It's a trade fair. Yeah. Kind of like how magic is in, in the States for streetwear designers. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's difficult to describe what it was for because it doesn't really exist anymore. Um, mm -hmm. It was for a time that has passed in a way. I mean, people like Dries van Norton is now at this, he's got an enormously successful company, he has his own showroom, he doesn't show at a trade fair anymore. Yeah. So, um, and the Millermeister's the same, but these were the people that we brought from the Antwerp 6. And yeah. uh, Dries van Norton and the Millermeister, Dirk Beckenbergs, and Walter van Beerendonk, Dirk van Sein. So it, we, we left out one, Maria Yee, who was a knitwear designer, and I, I didn't do it like it very much, but I liked all the rest.
What what was the singer again, sir? Maria Yi. Maria Yi. It's a, it's a difficult Maria Yi. Yeah. I don't know where the name comes from. Well, you, well, you had five six of the Antwerp. Five of the Antwerp six. Yeah. 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 And it made it so clear to me who the six were. And sometimes I find myself in arguments with people who think they know more than me. Um, <laughs> I remember having an online on a, on a radio argument with Colin McDowell, who was the at that time was the editor of the Sunday Times, the fashion editor of the Sunday Times, and he was trying to tell the world that um, Martin Margiela had been one of the Antwerp Six, and he absolutely wasn't. But he had graduated before the Six. He was slightly mm -hmm. older, not okay. a lot older, but just a bit older. Yeah. And he was already in Paris working when they graduated. So, so he, he missed the mark a little he bit. Missed, yeah, he missed to be included in the Antwerp Six. Mm -hmm. People write that so often that he was included that, that it becomes part of becomes part of a fact, which is not. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> curious. Uh, so yeah, that was very, 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 very exciting um, to work with them and, to, and still to know them. Um, yeah. Garrett Berlut, who was the he was the business graduate who um, put the Antwerp Six together. The idea, he had the idea for it, and he's he's still a friend of mine on Facebook. So yeah. we're still still connected after all these years, which is since, great since 1986. Yeah, I love, I love it. I love that. Um, so that, so yeah, so there was the Antwerp Six, and then shortly after that came Jean-Paul Gaultier. That, that, what he was doing was just so beautiful and exciting. Mm -hmm. Then we did a very foolish thing. Um, there was new architecture coming into the city uh, in shopping, like Princess Square was coming, yeah. the Italian centre was about to open. We were looking a bit shoddy, but rather than just buy a new carpet and freshen ourselves up, we did a very silly thing. We spent a lot of money on renovation. renovation. And we added a new sales floor in the basement, and we added a ground floor Siamese bar with some, um, you know, with its own cappuccino making machine and handmade sandwiches and yeah. um, freshly, it, freshly squeezed orange juice. Was this where the infamous kind of image of the cappuccino and the glass iron brew bottles come from? You know, we actually had the, the, the glass iron brew bottles were up in the in the cafe okay. and, the, and that was so funny because I remember arguing with my partners that, that you know, we called one of our partners that we were on the board mm -hmm. um, that people would be would want cappuccino and yet to have a successful cafe we had to have a really you know I know first of all cappuccino but it was the cafe manager who wanted iron brew and glass bottles because when he saw when the, the first cafe manager when he saw the quality of everything we're doing he said well the thing we need to have iron brew in the glass bottle and I'm, yes yes because that's the contrast of Glasgow's that's Glasgow's accent in this multicultural you know, European mix of food and yeah. and drinks, so to give it a Glasgow accent, so that was that was really important. It had to be grounded. So the renovations were happening, and was it just kind of the not the not the best move business-wise at the time? It wasn't the best move, no, because we basically what we did was we made the building more expensive to run, and we added another sales floor, so we needed more staff, and we had been out of the building for six months while the while the work was done. And that was a bit of a problem because we shouldn't have done that. Um, it, it just took us so long to get the business back. Yeah. And then by the mid-90s, all we could see was the high street nibbling away at the, the business that we had created as designer stores. Um, Cruise was a different kind of business. Cruise was basically a brand business and they would, they would follow brands that would be successful for them. Yeah. We, followed, we followed products that would be successful for us. The high street started like people like 
top shops started employing graduate designers and producing collections and then taking part in the trade shows and having catwalk shows. And it, it was just the Princess Square took Catherine Hamlet because they gave her a they gave her a flagship store. That that was that was a big downer for me because we had we had basically launched Catherine Hamlet in Glasgow and we sold so much of it. Um, yeah. So it was pretty sad for me when they when they did that. And then the Italian centre opened and they opened a Emporio Mani shop. Mm-hmm. Although we had never sold Emporio Mani, we sold the Mani Collezione. But you know that's semantics to the to the customer. They just wanted Giorgio Armani, and yeah. so our, our, our Armani business went mm-hmm. down the hill too. So it just got so difficult to find new. When we were, it was so big. You know, we needed so much design to fill the shop. Yeah. Coincidentally, it was always the, it was also the 65th birthday of the two major shareholders. They were my the other partners in the business, so we decided to stop. And uh, but we did what is quite refreshing in the business world. We paid all our debts and paid the paid even paid the VAT and the tax and paid everyone redundancy and then just wow. wound up. And stopped. Very very unique. It was uh, it was quite. Yeah. Unique. People just people are more selfish than that. So mm-hmm. I think it was a it was born of um, a commitment to the staff and to the suppliers, and we paid everyone. Yeah. Um, so I remember being someone someone opened up a shop in Union Street using our name, and I went in and told them to take it down, and they told me, "Oh, it's, it was just the staff in the shop." They said. Oh, but um, they can't do anything about it because the warehouse went bust. And I said, if you say that loudly, I'll sue you because the warehouse did not go bust. Mm. <laughs> and you know, that's the only time anyone ever said it. <laughs> anyway, they took the sign down. <laughs> 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 I was just so angry. <laughs> that was, that was, that was 1994. 1994, 94, yeah. And it, it, had a, it had a legacy. You know, that it, you know, arguably, kind of looking back, it, it did change how both fashion and commerce kind of went in Glasgow. I yeah, mean, it was a yeah. it was a real changing period from it was a the nineties. It was it was a period in the well the eighties especially because when I said that in the seventies we just all looked like our moms and dads. We, there wasn't individuality. Yeah. Um, and when when we started selling young creative designers, it just I mean it was incredible how much we sold. Late 80s were selling over, over 1.2, 1.3 million a year, and that's a lot of clothes. Um, and it's a lot, lot of clothes, a lot of customers, a lot of people. Um, so that trade, if you like, has been taken up by the high street. But I think so many young people's now, people of your generation, their parents were customers in the warehouse, and so they're, you know, they're, they're, their parents have got a very soft spot for it. And, mm-hmm. um, someone recently uh, who's living in Los Angeles, who used to work in the cafe in the warehouse, posted a photograph of a scan of a warehouse bag onto Facebook. Yeah. And it was incredible. It just it was all, it was like there's all these people who oh I remember oh, I remember the cafe, I remember this yeah. I've still got and people talk about the clothes they have. Um, so, and I'm finding it in here, in this shop, I'm meeting so many people who remember the warehouse and talking yeah. about things that they bought and sometimes people were 
just too young to buy that they did go, like to go in and look. And, yeah. and then other people who did buy, and it's, um, it's lovely to have that sort of feeling. And two years ago, I think, now it happened, um, the School of Arts Textile Department produced a book called The Inventors of Tradition. Of course, yeah. And, then, and that, that talked about people like the Macintosh Rainware Company. Um, and they gave a chapter to, to the warehouse, um, which yeah. was lovely. Really, um, I got a big kick out of that. It was terrific, and um, to have made some, to have some kind of legacy um, out, of, out of your work, it's, um, it's very satisfying. After that, I worked on the design festival that we had in '96. Well, it, the work was done in '95 between the yeah. between the design festival. Was this Glasgow's Miles Better era? Because yeah, I remember seeing that was, as a kid. Yeah, it was Glasgow's Miles Better era. Yeah. Pat Valley was the Lord Provost and Look that up internet. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was a short term contract and then after that I've always been interested in Charles Rennie Macintosh and it was it was actually one of the architects who'd done the refurbishment um, in, the, in the warehouse building really? at Asian Park who suggested that I might join the council of the Charles Rennie Macintosh Society. Wow. Um so I did as a I didn't realise at the time that there were they were basically grooming me to take over because the, the woman who had been the director wanted to give up. <laughs> so I did it for a few years, but it was, it was, it was kind of funny. I think I would probably enjoy it more now than I did then because I had come from the international fashion world and yeah. suddenly I was in a church in, in Glasgow Road <laughs> talking about Macintosh's delight. Used some of my childhood church lessons to interpret the building in, in a way that I don't think had been done before. And I was able then to talk about it uh, to visiting people and remember talking to a whole room full of um, um, ecclesiastical architects, um, mm-hmm. church architects. And they, they just loved it because they bought exactly what I was saying because they, they knew what I was talking about. Yeah. yeah. It's just, do you want to hear the story? It's very, very oh, simple. please, please do. It's very, very simple. Mackin- Tosh got the brief, and he was a 28-year-old architect, a young, young guy. It was mm-hmm. before the School of Art had been built. He got the brief to design the church, and he was working for Hanuman Kepi. But the commissioning church was called St Matthew's, and they had a church on Bath Street. It's not there anymore. It was called St Matthew's on Bath Street. Okay. So Macintosh's perspective drawing that he created was a perspective drawing with a title of St Matthew's, but St Matthew's at Queen's Cross. Knowing the way Macintosh's mind worked and the, the, the creative people at that time were part of a, a creative group who were very influenced by the international concept of symbolism. So symbolism as referred to in carving and, and drawings. So what Macintosh's brief said was that they wanted a church, a church designed in the new Gothic design, so it was a Gothic revival. Okay. So what he did was he looked back to what Gothic had been before it was being revived. Mm-hmm. And of course, Gothic design predated the Reformation. So before the Reformation, there were leaded glass windows that referred to elements of stories from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And Macintosh's drawing includes all these things. But it also includes outside of the smaller door to the east of the building a little boot scraping iron suggesting this is the door that you go in to get the message. And above the door uh, mm-hmm. is the head of a bird 
with a low pointed beak with arms coming out, not arms, <laughs> like arms, but yeah. wings, wings coming round. And coming up around the beak is, is the, the growth coming from plants. Around the pulpit there are five versions of that carved in wood with the bird's beak and the plant growth. Yeah. And it's the central passage in St Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the sower and the seed. And it, basically it's the sower goes out to sow his seed and the first seed falls by the wayside and it's eaten by the birds. The second seed fell, fell on the stony ground. It tried to grow up but it withered and died. And on either side of the chancel there are two little walls with little eruptions in the stone. And yeah. the, that's the, the seed trying to grow up through the stone but it, it couldn't get through so it withered and died. And then seeds that fell among thorns and at the back of the church there's a, there's a, there's a choir stall or a balcony at the back mm. and the carving on the face of it includes in the corner two roots of plants which have got thorns attacking roots and wow. then the rest of the seed falls in the fertile ground and so it's a parable for preaching, it's a parable for what comes from the pulpit, yeah. that the seed, the preacher the seed of what he's saying is falling sometimes on fertile ground but sometimes among the stones but yeah. sometimes it falls in the midst of this congregation and it's received wow so it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's and it's not there anymore yes yes it's, it's there. still there. It's there you can go and see it it's yeah. there it's there I, I drove past it this morning it's on Grasgrove Road go and see it go it's see amazing it. it's absolutely amazing was when you were working in the in the Macintosh Society and I know that you've referenced the fact that you know your church days kind of influenced the ways that you were thinking and describing these churches. Mm -hmm. You understood the parables. Did you find more faith and a faith, and a faith background coming out when discussing things like architecture more than they did in fashion? Was there ever an overlap? In fashion? Yeah. No, I, no, I, I don't think there was ever a, a faith overlap in fashion. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd, um, I'd almost go as far as to say that never raised its head in fashion. It was, <laughs> my, a, it was my, a secular practice. It was very much a secular practice, yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, don't, I don't want to mislead you. I'm, I'm not a practicing Christian. And, of course. But I was brought up in Catholicism. So mm -hmm. I went to a Jesuit college. And Jesuits make you go to church every single morning. So you, you, a lot of it sticks in your mind, in your memory, of yeah. things that you heard and things that you read. But uh, fashion... No, I don't, don't think anyone ever mentioned God in fashion, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> except, except in its tweeters. <laughs> oh, for God's sake, <laughs> get on with it, <laughs> stuff like that. The reason that the architects got excited was because the the windows that I talked about, they used to have stained glass in them. Macintosh had actually put in the stone tracery and then chopped it off as if Cromwell's army had smashed the glass out because they disapproved, Cromwell's army disapproved of the references to the Holy Family and, and um, so you've now got in the, in the, in the windows you've got leaded glass um, but just little rectangles of plain glass but you've still got the bits of stone, the tracery and the stone that are cut off and they, that was when I told that, when I pointed that out to the architects they loved that because they said that that was perfect symbolism for, for, the, for, for, the, for the brief which had been you were a gothic building. So, wow. Yeah, it's great. It's just, it was all by accident looking at the thing and thinking, why, why are these bits of stone there? And then I looked at the drawing and thought, well, that's why it's. Yeah. There's another twist. On, on one side of the, of the chancel, the wall 
um, there's a there's a little mound and it's plain, mm -hmm. and that's the seed falling on the, the the stony ground. But on the other side, it's faceted, and it took a while for the, that penny to drop. But of course, okay. it's a pyramid, and it leads that the wall leads to the baptismal font. So it's the it's the pyramids oh, of wow. Egypt. So when Moses led led Moses led the children of Israel to Egypt, basically on the Nile, and yeah. they were baptized there. So that's where the baptismal font is. And that's the reference to Egypt. Wow, Macintosh <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, amazing. So you need to have drawn that and got somebody to sit and go ching 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 with a chisel. Yeah, that's wild. Amazing. It's wild. You've got to go and see it. You love to. it. You really love it. That, you were in the Macintosh Society and then, well, that was your time outside of being involved in fashion? Yeah, yeah, that was. Did, that you, ever, was. did you ever think of going back to Accountant? Did no, it never no, cross your mind? No, no Accountancy, that was a bit too dry for me. Hmm. Two things I think I would have liked to have done. I'd like to have been a conductor, I'd like to have conducted an orchestra. Really? Yeah, I really would have liked that. Were, like in, in opera or...? Yeah, was orchestral it? music or chamber yeah. music or, or opera. I love all these aspects of music. Did like the new composers kind of interest you, like the yeah. cages and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah well, yeah, sort of, yeah. I find it a bit... Yeah, it's okay, but it's, it's not, it doesn't do for me what Bach can do or Beethoven yeah. or Mozart or... Do you have a favourite concerto or a favourite piece of classical music? I get a feeling I'm using concerto in the same way I used couture earlier on. Did it maybe yeah, the wrong yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> concerto is a particular, a particular composition, yeah. um, like an opera, a concerto, or, or a song, or an aria. Yeah. Um, I would like to state that I got an A in higher music, and I've lost it now. <laughs> <laughs> this comes from someone that does music writing. Okay. Um, do I have a favourite piece of music? I... I that's, that's really hard. To be honest, one of my favourite pieces of music is not classical. It's a, it's a piece of music by a um, pianist. It's called the Cologne Concert. The Cologne Concert. K-L-O-N. It's improvised piano music. And it was a concert given in the mid-70s on the stage of Cologne Cathedral. Yeah. And... Um, the pianist was an American called Keith Jarrett, and Keith, Keith Jarrett does. He's, he's classically trained, so you, you get you get music recordings of Keith Jarrett playing Mozart piano concertos. But this yeah. is a piece of improvised jazz jazz inspired music, um, but it's just so atmospheric, um, and I'm never tired of listening to it. I've really have been playing it since the mid seventies, and I just never tire of it. And I, I play it in the shop, and people. Ask me what it is. Say that's wonderful. That's a joy. Yeah. People discovering something that you've you've had as part of your life. <laughs> it's really nice. You you introduce it. Let's see. It's the Cologne concert. The Cologne um, concert. A live recording by pianist Keith Jarrett from the stage of the Cologne Opera House. Here we go. Let, here's a little bit of it.
architecture. Yeah. Architecture is probably the closest thing to my spirit. Um, I just I love because it's such a kind of uh, civilizing gift, you know, to be able to create beautiful buildings, mm-hmm. both for individuals and for large, you know, large groups, like an opera house, say, or, you know, I remember on a visit to Helsinki walking up uh, a, a building designed by Alvarado and hearing Sibelius in my head just because yeah. I was in Finland and, and you're know, putting, putting the music and the architecture together and just feeling this incredible joy. Barcelona Pavilion, Miss Van der Rohe. Mm. It's just glass and stone. Amazing. It's absolutely stunning. Stunning. Barcelona's um, got some beautiful, beautiful buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, a lot of the Gaudi um, oh, yeah, music exactly. contemporary of Macintosh is seen that that sort of art nouveau swirl. I just, I found architecture to my life to be, be so inspiring to, I remember on a trip to, I a trip to the west coast to, America and find yourselves in uh, LA and having an introduction to a man who had been the creator of a, a historic house called the Gamble House. It was okay. built for Procter and Gamble family. Oh um, right, wow! And by two two architects uh, called Green and Green, they were brothers. So it was slightly related to Macintosh, a bit between Macintosh and Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm-hmm. Outdoor planes of sleeping platforms and all made of wood, and there's a lot of Chinese influence in the way that the wood is connected in terms of the construction of the staircase, etc. Yeah. That that was it's made a huge impression on, on me, and still still can't forget it. So yeah, architecture is amazing. Before before we get into the late pass, um, we can't go anywhere without talking about the W two store and Comme des Garcons. You were one of the first people to bring over Comme des Garçons and Yoji Yamamoto to the UK, weren't you? Yeah, well, that was in the warehouse days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. And that was in the, in the late 80s. Uh, have you ever met Ray uh, Kabakubo? Yes, yes, indeed. indeed. Mm. In fact, I knew her husband, Adrian Joff, before he knew Ray Kabakubo. Okay. I go back a long way with him. Yeah. He used to sell me his, his, sister, his, his sister's network collection. It was called Rose Joff, and she is the Rose is the um, the woman who's behind the Rose Bakery. It's part of Dover Street Market. Oh, for real! Yeah, mm. absolutely for real. Uh, yeah. Dover Street Market is almost like the uh, because I wasn't really around. I think I was about six when the warehouse closed. Mm. But from what I've read about it, what you've told me today, it almost seems the Dover Street Market in London is almost like. Yeah, similar, yeah, similar, to the similar, similar, yeah, similar to the ethos. Similar to the ethos. Although Dover Street Market was this, similar to the ethos in terms of the, the, the mixture of um, brands and brands being given their own space. So you, mm-hmm. we, we never mixed brands up. We always separated the brands and gave them yeah. space. Ray Kamakiwa did that with Dover Street Market, but she based her concept on Kensington High Street Market, which was mm-hmm. more random and slightly more quirky and fun. So the, the idea of putting like, an old hut into the sales floor, that was that, mm. was, that was part of that, that it was slightly random. And, and I'm dying to see the, the New York one because oh, yeah. in 2002, I must have just been a bit bored and I decided to go to university and did a master's degree in fashion marketing. Okay. 
Did you get any weird looks from people like, what, 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 what are you doing here? You yeah, were, you're some, the man behind yeah, the walls. I think some people, some people thought I was a teacher. I know, and I had to go back now. I do, I do actually teach now. Oh, okay. <laughs> at the university, um, the student has now become the, the teacher. Become the teacher. Yeah. 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 But the the thing, the great thing about that was one of one of my most amazing and enduring friendships came out of that, and it was because the the professor asked us to name our favourite designer or shop. And when I said wake up a keyboard come to get our song, this guy who had a long red mullet and this horrible jacket <laughs> came over and he's listening, he was you'll remember the jacket and you'll remember the mullet. Yeah. <laughs> he came over and said, uh, hey it's good to meet somebody that likes comedy or song. Could uh, could we do a project together? And we did. And then we did another one and we did another one and we, we became a kind of insepar inseparable at the end of his degree, he, he was, his first his first degree had been in um, chemical engineering yeah. because his dad had been in the oil industry, um, but he wanted to work in fashion. So his parents agreed to support him if he would if he would finish his first undergraduate degree and then do his masters. Yeah. So I remember standing on the pavement in Highland where he lived and where I lived, and his parents had a, a flat in the same street. And remember him telling me that he was sending off all these applications and he couldn't get any interviews. And so I thought, well, your, your mum and dad, are, I think they were in Azerbaijan at the time, so he didn't have many ties. I said, would you go to Yorkshire? Because um, I know a woman who's got a business down there that she sells common usually in, in Barnsley. Okay. She probably would have great difficulty getting someone like you to go to Barnsley. So he said, yeah, sure, I would do that. So I wrote him a, an introductory letter. He got a job there, and that was the start of his career in the fashion industry. What was the gentleman called? His name's James Gilchrist, and he's important in my story because we worked in Pollyanna and Barnsley for two years, and on the circuit he met Adam Kimmel, mm. and the American designer encouraged him to come out and work in New York. Mm. And so he was working in New York with Adam for, I think, for more than seven years, and then Adam decided to stop producing and James was, at that point he was married and so he thought what am I going to do now and they just bought the first house, flat and apartment in Brooklyn Heights. Lo and behold, Comedy Garson were going to open Dollar Street Market and James is headhunted <laughs> and he's the general manager of Dollar Street Market in New York. Fantastic. On Lexington Avenue. So that's from, from Lauderdale to Lexington. Yeah. <laughs> Highland, from Highland to Lexington Avenue. And he, he's, he's I mean, typical James, he's revolutionising things. He's, he's got hand-picked staff from, from the cream of um, New York's fashion world. Mm. And he's insisted that they don't wear any Comte Garçon uniform. They're, they're, they've got to wear their own style. So yeah. that they bring their own style into the space and it adds to this random and quirkiness of the, of the space. Yeah. So it's even more quirky, I think, than London. Um, so I'm dying, I'm really dying to see it. Too. Broken away from the format in the sense that they've brought in um, more street style, so they've brought in Supreme. Yeah. Um, I think that's really good because it's partly why James didn't want everyone looking like Comte Garçon soldiers. Yeah. So he's got them all I, I went to Supreme in Soho in yeah. New York yeah. and I just heard hearsay of it being the most terrifying. Um, <laughs> yeah. consumer experience I would ever have and surely as soon as I walk up the road I can hear like 2003 era 50 cent and G-Unit blasting out of the window G-Unit, we in here, we can get the drama popping, we don't care, 
It's going down, because I'm around, 56, you know how I just died. I had taken so much coffee mm -hmm. that I was literally shaking on my way up there. <laughs> but two things. You're blaming the coffee, not I, your nerves. I sounded very apologetic the entire time I was in there. Okay, so you've got one up in me, you've been there. <laughs> and did you find it intimidating? Um, I was slightly intimidated. They were mostly just kind of like, oh, you're just another customer. They, they were fine. They were, mm -hmm. they were fine. But I, I was too much, too much coffee, mm -hmm. and then getting to getting to the Guggenheim on like an extra, extra large coffee, listening to speed metal the entire time, being like, I'm gonna look at architecture, <laughs> which did not calm my nerves. I was like a ticking time bomb. Mm -hmm. But really, through, really. through James, I guess that's where your connection with Adam Kimmel comes from. Yes, you stopped in the shop. It is. It is. It is. And yeah. uh, where does uh, Margaret Hill come in? Well, you see over there, there are, there are hoods. Um, mm -hmm. It's called Lestrange. These hoods are produced by two young guys. Um, one of the guys is Tom Horn. And Tom Horn's mother, Penny, is a great friend of mine yeah. from the fashion industry. Penny um, had worked for many designers over the years, but she knew the people at Margaret Hill really well. I was downstairing with her at the point where we were thinking about turning the gorilla store into a, a post-gorilla store. Yeah. Um, and I said, that I need to find a, a brand that's got the kind of scale of Comic or something to supply me at the price point that, that we can sell here. It's basically end of lines that they will reduce that we can sell at a realistic price in Glasgow. It's, it's a godsend to me. Yeah. She said, yeah, well, why don't, why don't we phone up Richard, who's the managing director, and go along and meet him, and I'll, I'll introduce you. And that's what, that's what happened. He seemed to be, I mean, I knew him from the clothing industry because we recognised one another right away. Yeah. There's very few people that have been in the industry for a long time that I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, so that was a terrific, um, it was a terrific ranger because we, we basically, for some people, Congregation's a bit too avant-garde. Mm -hmm. um, for many of the people in the West End of Glasgow, it's Margaret Hill, it's very, it's very appealing. Adam Kimmel was was also had a kind of crossover effect. It was slightly it was more designed than Margaret Hill, but it wasn't as extreme as Comedy Awesome. Yeah. That's what I'm waiting to do. This is, this is Adam Kimmel for Carhartt. This is yeah. Carhartt and jackets. Junior wanted Oh man. I've always wanted a junior jacket. Yeah. Always, always. One one day I'm gonna get there. You'll get one. You'll get one. One day I'm gonna get there. Yeah, he's he's just the most incredible designer. Junya Watanabe has always seemed to me like a bit of an enigma. He's he's the reason why I around that time I got I had an interest in clothes and fashion yeah, for the first yeah. time. Because of Junya, there was an ID uh, photo shoot that had uh, Frank Carter, who's the now egg singer of a, a hardcore band called Gallows, mm. just this. A uh, red-haired, short, cropped, tattoos everywhere guy. Mm. It was just this beautiful shoot with some incredible junior stuff, mm. and that made me go, "That's it. That's mm. suddenly what I'm obsessed with." Yeah. Come to Garçon and Junior. Mm, yeah, he's a very, very talented designer. Mm. Um, just he, he never ceases to surprise and amaze me. The quality is just absolutely incredible. It's just Junior. <laughs> do Do you ever have any? Any pieces from Junior or from just fashion in general that you just have archived, like that you wouldn't touch? I'm not really very good at archiving. I 
Mm-hmm. If it's to be worn, you feel it's to be worn. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I give some pieces to some students at Glasgow School of Art to dissect and to learn how they were made, but I think that's a positive yeah. use for them if I stop wearing them. Um, I, I, like, I like the sports aspect of what I know the best. I like, the, I like the relaxed nature of the things that he does. And his shows are wonderful. Yeah, they're theatre. Oh, the absolute theatre. There was a there was a, there was a wonderful moment um, in fairly recent. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it, it was a it was a scene that was set in Central Park because there were park benches on the, on the there was no there was no runway. It was just a big open space yeah. with the seats around. And instead of simply music, there was a voiceover, and it was from a Woody Allen film. Mm. So. And interestingly, we talked earlier on about Keith Jarrett and Colin Concert. Ah. He, used, he used Keith Jarrett's music in that, in that show. Usually, uh, the people that we've had on talk about mm. things in pop culture that they have, um, they may have missed the first wave, but now they've caught up with it, or things that are in the canon, you know, they're, uh, they just don't have that interest and they're late to and they're going to stay late to it. But mm. we were talking about this sort of contemporary culture of waste as you called it mm-hmm. and <clears throat> the way that there's new fresh ways to deal with it using <clears throat> modern technology and you brought up yeah. this <clears throat> website you've been working with called fix my street yeah fix my street i just think it's so clever what, what it does is it takes the concept of a google map but it makes it interactive you know that you know, how, how annoying a pdf can be that you can't change anything well this is not oh, this man, is the yeah. opposite so what you what you do is you go onto so first of all you've seen some horrible rubbish that you, that you think shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. So you take a photograph on your iPhone or your smartphone, then go on to fix my street. You put in your postcode or the postcode of where the rubbish is, and then the map comes up. And when you start, you're putting in your you have to give it a title. Your post gets a title, so it's fly tipping in Ruffin Lane, say, and then a description. The description uh, just takes up a short paragraph. When you've done that, when you started that, it's possible then to move the cursor to exactly where the rubbish is. Mm-hmm. And all you then do is just click send. And it's sent to the local authority who who send the men out. And it took only two days for me posting that and putting the image on to fix my street. Mm-hmm. And I just thought how wonderful it is that technology has been harnessed in that way that it solves the problem of sending an email to the Department of Cleansing and then somebody coming out and inspecting and making notes in a book and going away and yeah. you know two weeks later something might happen. But this way it goes instantly to them. Technology when it works like that is And it's as someone that's you know, you're a business owner, this is something that you know, you've had to deal with. Sure, sure. Because uh, you want to, you want to keep the environment attractive for your customers. As we, as we get more and more and more into um, recycling, that means sorting. Businesses now have to sort their waste. So cardboard has to be separated from glass. Has to be separated yeah. from plastics. And that means more and more and more wheeled bins in the streets. If you're going to cope with the wheel bins, at least. They've got to be ordered, and yeah. you can't start putting out other rubbish or it just turns into chaos. Mm. So please, please don't do it. And if you see any, go on to fix my street. Is, is that something that interests you, the fact that now there's chances for 
ecological progress that can be harnessed through things like social media and new technology? Is that something that's maybe not, maybe shocked is too strong a word, but something mm. that surprised you over time? It surprised me. I was reading the, um, I was, I got it in my bag, uh, the FT magazine. I was reading an article there mm. over the weekend, and it was about, a, I think he's in his 40s, he's a French a left wing economist who's written a book about the inequality in life, you know, the inequality that's growing in society. And this is especially pointing a finger at the American dream and saying how, how possible is it for the American dream to be realised now because it only seems to be possible if you make a huge amount of money and then what, what they were so proud about in America was that they, they weren't replicating the European system of hierarchy of, of um, titled people and money, yeah. but they're basically replicating it in, in the way the economy feeds money to oligarchical type families, yeah. um, and the poor are still poor. So there's not there's not a spread of money. There's no trickle down. There's no trickle down, and there's there's no there's no real equality of taxation because I mean if people are if people have got billions of dollars, why why could they not pay a little bit more tax to to help people that are down at the other end, and could governments not spread money around and make, make it possible for people to live better? The point I'm getting to is yeah. that I knew all about this guy through Facebook, because someone had posted, a, one of my friends in New York had posted an article from the New York Times about this guy giving a, a, a lecture in New York, mm-hmm. um, so I was actually there before the FT, okay. <laughs> um, when social media came out, I like Facebook because I, like, I don't like to... I don't like the way in in Twitter you have to kind of abbreviate your sentences and yeah. I prefer to write a sentence with commas and full stop. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm I'm happy that even Facebook can can give me that kind of insight into contemporary life and I just I love the development of social media and that that, that just just the fact that I'm so informed by mm-hmm. social media. Um, some, I mean, some of it's tedious, but it's more inf- informative than tedious. Yeah. And the having having been in a certain fashion world, it's wonderful to have these people's posts on Facebook popping up. You know, mm-hmm. people like Dries Van Norton and Walter Van Buren don't don't get very much from Jasper Conrad because he's now running the Conrad shop. Yeah. He, he hasn't posted anything in months. So, um, but these are people that I knew that know that were part of the Facebook um, I got started on it and so I, I love that aspect of it. On the side where there's um, things like Fix My Street where mm-hmm. there's a sign of social change that can happen mm-hmm. through elements like that I mean coming from the baby boom all the way up to this time mm-hmm. does it seem like a good progress that there's now these these far more instant and immediate means for that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, very, very, very much so. Um, we had a great example of um, people power when the Commonwealth Games Committee announced in Glasgow that they were going to blow up the Red, the Red Road, Road flats, flats, yeah. And, you know, I, I was really horrified by it because I thought it was a crass idea and it shouldn't happen. But people power through a petition that was launched on Facebook made them reverse their position. And I think that's absolutely terrific. I think they made the right decision in the end, and, and it was social media that made them do it. In this statement, they kind of 
stepped around the fact that it was safety. yeah they said a lot of safety concerns rather yeah. than the fact that people were horrified about it well they've been um, planning it for two years so mm. sorry but they looked at the safety before now yeah, yeah. definitely so they would do they would covering their backs and getting off with it. whatever they say it doesn't really matter if they have to save face then fine but um, it would have been like 9-11 and happening in Glasgow you would imagine Mm. Well, that would absolutely bring back all these memories of my own horrible idea. Yeah. Um, I'm glad it's been binned. So, late pass would be um, Fix My Street, which is, um, you know, it's it's a definitely new way for people to even just deal with everyday life in the yeah. council and yeah, exactly. deal with the council and cleaning. And exactly, exactly. I mean, schools, our local school now has got an eco committee that are, mm. they're, they're trying to encourage that other pupils at the school not to drop litter and because of often the food, food litter is feeding the, the gulls that are you know, yeah. smoking and waking us up in the morning and so I think that that's wonderful that young people are involved in it. Are you optimistic about things that could change eco ecologically through, you know, like digital means? I think the major issue that we've got in the world is inequality and if we could sort that out, the d digital means can basically help people to be informed and find find the right job and be mobile and move from move from Sydney. You you you're willing to do it, you'll go to somewhere where there's work and yeah, I think the internet mm -hmm. can do things much more instantly now. Yeah. And get action, reaction. You know, I am I'm optimistic. I really am optimistic. I think I think there's much more information out there. There's much more news about political developments and people, people don't hide as much nowadays. Yeah. Um, I mean, the guy the guy that I was talking about who had written the book in France about inequality, is, he's, he's, had, he's been interviewed by the White House and by the, the Federal Reserve and because they want to understand these policies that he's proposing. And I think that's terrific, but that's just all come out of media and, and uh, the social media especially. Yes. Just as we wrap things up on an optimistic note, as someone that's been involved in fashion for a long time, and someone that continues to be involved in fashion, who is there any designers or particular lines that you're on bated breath for in 2014? I know it's a very vast field, a very mm. vast question, or even or even in Scotland, if there's any designers that are, you know, piquing your your interest. Mm. Yeah. Well. See, the trouble with Scotland is that there aren't enough jobs in manufacturing side of design. Mm. So, so many of the, the young creatives are moving to London. Yeah, um, it's what's happened with my family, yeah. yeah. Got there's members a, working design. Yeah. There's a, there's a terrifically talented network designer who's living in Glasgow and producing cashmere scarves that are produced on the borders. And mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have any left, but we sold them in the winter time. And she's called Jennifer Kent. Jennifer Kent. And her and no, it's called Edition Scotland. Edition, Edition Scotland. Scotland. I see in Jennifer's work a, a lot of uh, creative integrity and scarves are beautiful. She's, she's got, Edition Scotland has a, had a, has a website that people would look at it. Okay, um, we'll throw it up in the links underneath. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a young creative guy working called Alan Moore who's got a brand called 1030. He, Alan is working with um, Harris Tweed and using Harris Tweed in a contemporary way. He seems to be at the moment to be determined, determined to stay here and keep keep 
keep working. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, which is which is good. He's just done a pop up in um, in the Italian centre for I think it was in, no no so it wasn't it was in Buchanan Galleries mm -hmm. um, for for a weekend. Uh, that's called Ten Thirty, which has got an interesting an interesting background. So oh yeah. The, the, yeah. The name Ten Thirty was was a, was achieved. It was conceived by a group of guys who were creative people, graduates of Rosa School of Art. They were on a trip somewhere, I can't remember which city they were in, mm -hmm. but they were in a hotel in room 30 on floor 10. Hey. <laughs> they, conceived the, they conceived the concept and they called it 1030. That's good. <laughs> I like it. I really like it. But yeah, anyway, he's a lovely guy. So Brilliant. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. No, no problem. If uh, people want to see the shop or if people want to, um, you know, kind of have a gander over, they can find you at at uh, w2store.co.uk Brilliant. And we're there. You guys are open uh, Monday's appointment only. Yeah, yeah. But that happens when uh, it's just to give us a bit of space to do stuff like this. <laughs> yeah. Monday, we have the joiner in to put the shelves that's just gone up. <laughs> um, Come soon, there will be new shelves. Yeah, we've got a, a, a new and um, very creative uh, shoe collection arriving next week from Matt. From Berlin, where it comes via the creative mind of a Norwegian designer. Retail's got to keep changing and moving, and um, I couldn't think of a better way to spotlight them by giving them their own space. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's happening next week. And there'll be photographs of the shoes online. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to say? Um, uh, just that I, I'm sorry I didn't give you a job. <laughs> you gave me a record player. I did. <laughs> okay. That's never happened in any other job. I just don't get the job and they're like, bye. Bye. <laughs> That's funny. Well, thank, okay. thank you. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure. Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. you get a degree in business or engineering and then you spend the rest of your life making money during the week and drinking it away during the weekend because there's nothing else to do and that's kind of something I never wanted in life so I left when I was 17 it seems like there's no art or music or fun and it's all about money yeah I mean there's always been money in Aberdeen like but money is just so much, like if there's 
It still felt like a place that never appreciated culture. There are a fuckload of drinking establishments just all piled on top of each other. I don't know if this is true anymore, but at one point, I believe it was. So Belmont Street is about an eighth of a mile long, I would say. It's very short. It's kind of where I ended up drinking quite a lot because a lot of venues were there. But apparently they had the highest saturation of bars in an area in the world. Because there was about, for that eighth of a mile, there was about 50 bars and clubs which was quite crazy. Even though there's all that money up north, there's still so many social problems. I lived near places like Fraserburgh and Peterhead. Peterhead's like has the biggest uh, maximum security prison in Scotland, I believe. It used to be then, because they're fishing towns, they had huge problems with heroin and just other drugs. It's kind of funny when I speak to someone and they tell me about how they were, as a kid, growing up in Glasgow, like just tell me about their Ned phase or whatever. And then I just kind of think about the people I grew up with. I'm just like, one of them's in prison for murder? It's just like... But maybe, maybe there's a scene that's there which never was when I was a kid as well. I've heard a lot that Aberdeen's a nice place to visit, but for me it was a horrible place to grow up. And it is kind of interesting for me to try and figure, like, try and figure out why that's the case and trying to understand whether it's a place I would ever go back to. Like, even living there, it didn't feel like home. It just felt like somewhere I was. And that's us. Thank you, Jules. You can follow her at, on Twitter at Jules Leano. And our intermittent, um, our intermittent web scene, Glitch Scene. You can find it at glitchscene.tumblr.com. And that's us for this week. Please um, rate and subscribe on iTunes. Um, send your emails over to latepantspodcast at gmail.com. Follow me. I'm on Tumblr at, at Daniel Monton. And we'll be back next week. So, before I go, five W's. Who? Daniel. When? Every week. Where? On Latepath. Why? Because everyone's a little late sometimes. And what? Exactly. I'm off to bed. Night.